Quarter Guys, the show where the lines between freight and finance are none. I'm your host, Andrew Cox, alongside lead economist Anthony Smith, my co-host for the day. Anthony, thank you for joining me. This is a busy man right here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I just saw him finish up a webinar not 30 seconds before we hop on the air live right here. Busy man. Also, another new show that you guys have just, that you've just launched, Economy Lately. I wanted to give it a special shout out because it is a very uh, unique show to the Freight Waves audience. Nothing like we've done before. You get all of Anthony and all his glory uh, in many up close and, and awesome shots. Fantastic stuff. You can find that, of course, on Freightcast. That is where all of our Freight Waves podcasts are located. You can find Point of Sale, my other podcast there, as well as Great Quarter Guys and everything that we do, What the Truck and the rest of the lineup. So subscribe to Freightcast wherever you listen to podcasts, either Apple Music or Spotify. All right, we've got an awesome show for you today. I've got a guest that I've been looking forward to having on for some time. His name is Ethan Ternofsky. He is the VP of Marketing at Placer AI. Anybody that has been watching this show for some time, that will be a familiar name, Placer. They've got some of the best foot traffic data in the business uh, anywhere in the, in the country. So we're going to talk to him about the retail foot traffic recovery, what are the trends he's seeing, and what is the data saying about a post-pandemic uh, retail environment? So we're going to have him up here in a moment, but I do want to take a moment to thank my sponsor, DDC FPO. This episode is brought to you by DDC FPO. DDC is a business process outsourcing provider that specializes in freight. Perhaps best known for freight billing, DDC recently launched IT outsourcing to help supply chain stakeholders hit development milestones without risking financial performance. Learn more at ddcfpo.com. All right, Mr. Smith, Anthony, we have two charts of the day for you. I'll go with mine first, and then Anthony will bring his Mine comes to you from Sonar today. We are taking a look at total business inventory to sales ratio. That is the blue line. And then I've also got some of the by segment uh, lines there. So some of the granularities of this inventory. And the, the picture here is that inventories are even lower now than they were in January. And in January, they were at a multi-decade low. So we did see inventories pick up just a little bit in March, up 0.3% but we saw sales jump 10.7%. So you're not seeing the same type of growth uh, match there, which brings that inventory to sales ratio even further down to 1.23 right now. That's the lowest uh, record point that I've seen in the database, on the, in the FRED database dating back to 1992. All that said that we have a lot of inventory restocking to do. Retailers are getting inventory in as fast as they can. It's still not enough. And we've got a long time uh, of this restocking ahead of us, which means even when that reversion back to services happens, I think that the freight industry is quite insulated from it on the retail side of things because of these inventory levels. Anthony, I will pass to you for your chart of the day. So Andrew, real quick, what you're saying is there's a lack of inventory and increased demand. Yep. Increase in pricing then? Well, that's what we're seeing. Uh, we're starting to see that trickle down, right? We saw the April CPI, uh, the core um, price um, index. What, am I missing something? Core price index? Yeah, uh, that uh, ticked up, I think, what was it, 0.6 or 0.8%, so above expectations growth there. We are starting to see those things trickle in. We're definitely seeing higher prices on the producer side of the house. Uh, pretty much every commodity that you can think of uh, is at multi-year highs on prices there. So we're starting to see those things trickle in. I, I would say the only thing the only thing I'd say is that it could be offset. Some of the negative impact of higher prices could be offset by the ex extremely high savings rate right now and just the cash flush consumer. Uh, but that's that. That's an ex excellent take. Thank you, sir. So uh, coming up next, we have 
of course, my chart of the week, and I'm going to have housing starts and one of my favorite proprietary indices, flatbed outbound tender rejections. So what we've seen in the latest month for housing starts was that there was indeed a tick down. So I included this because this is something that we were talking about in the week before with the anticipation of housing starts coming out and that we were expecting a downward movement within housing starts. Of course, this is not something that is completely overtly negative and showing that there's a diminished demand for housing, but it kind of ties into that lack of adequate supply for some of those commodities talking about lumber here and building other building product materials. And so when we're looking at that, we're seeing that that, that is really starting to kind of slow and place a headwind on overall production, or I should say housing start activity moving throughout the economy. I mean, housing starts is just one component of it. We also have to look at existing home sales, which is going to make up a much more larger port part of the housing transactionary market. We're going to look at existing home sales making up well over 80% into that 90% range for overall transactions. Housing starts are going to make up a much smaller percentage, but that lack of inventory on existing home sales at a historic low is going to put a lot more upper pricing pressure on those new home sales as well. So we've got housing starts starting to uh, sputter a little bit, slow down after that torrid growth we've seen over the past few months. But we still have the National Association of Home Builders Sentiment Index. It remained unchanged from April to May at 83. So we, at least the home builders aren't seeing uh, this slowing starts, at least right now, as a, as, a, as a headwind enough to change their sentiment, right? Exactly. And I mean, when we look at the HPSI, the Home Purchasing Sentiment Index from Fannie Mae, different components go into it. The, the biggest one that had the negative drop was consumers thinking whether to, right now was a good time to either purchase or sell a home. So people think it's not the best time to buy a home because I'd agree. <laughs> it's just so difficult to get that home. And so that was the main component that took the index down at all, just a, a little bit. So all other factors for those consumers are up. You talked about these consumers being flush with cash. This is especially true for those household um, that had the income level right around 50000 to 100000 and especially those that have been able to maintain employment throughout this entire pandemic. They're sitting on that savings. They're wanting to buy a house, but it's just been very difficult. Yeah, I, I anecdotally can't agree more. I'm trying to buy a house here in Chattanooga. Just not even worth the look. I've parked that search train uh, for now because it's so difficult. Let's do you, Karen, all real quick before we bring Ethan on. We've got two for you. Uh, we'll try to run through these quickly. The first one is on the unemployment rate. It ticked up from 6% to 6.1% from March to April. Anthony, you care or not? No. No, no, no. I mean, I care that it's not moving kind of in accordance with what we've seen in initial jobs claims, but I think this is going to be somewhat to be expected, especially where you see lower income um, consumers really kind of competing with those initial jobs claims benefits, bonus benefits mm. that are going to be put out, that additional $300 per week. And so when you look at that, a lot of times you got to take into consideration wages. And so are those wages going to be competitive? I think a little bit later on, we're going to talk about one of the companies that are making an aggressive step into being much more competitive on those wages stand front. What about Definitely. you? You care? Uh, I don't care on this one. I think uh, the report does highlight how bumpy this recovery is going to be. Like, it's not just going to be smooth sailing. But, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is still estimating 4.5% unemployment at the, year, at the end of the year, uh, which would be, you know, 
in line, just slightly above pre-COVID. Long-term unemployment rate actually did fall. Uh, the U6, kind of the broader definition. Uh, I mean, sorry, the long-term unemployment fell as well as the U6, kind of that broader definition fell uh, from March to April. So no, I am, I'm not worried about this. I'd like to see that trend reverse uh, when we get the data next month, but, but not worried about it. All right, real quick, uh, Walmart, I'm just gonna, we're just going to say this one. Uh, Walmart has acquired a virtual fitting room company called Zekit. I will see if Ethan has a thought on this, but uh, I'll say that I care. We, we'll, we'll pass on uh, Anthony here. I care about this one. I love the move. Um, Walmart is planning on trying to sell more clothes online. They're having strong e-commerce growth, especially in the apparel sector. They're going to pitch this as a way to have an, a more immersive customer experience and a way to make online shopping, uh, especially apparel shopping, more social. But I think the real benefit will be to its supply chain. Uh, retailers, especially apparel retailers, are having incredible results implementing AR and VR into the pre-purchase uh, process of the retail environment. And I think Walmart will do the same here. Shopify has seen 40% fewer returns on uh, purchases that were made using AR and VR. And I think that this is a great move to help reduce the long-term returns on Walmart's um, on, on Walmart's supply chain. And also Walmart, last thing I'll say is, is they are trying to move into higher priced retail, which comes with higher margins. You know, they've bought some uh, very some pertinent brands in the last few years, Bonobos and ModCloth. They've also launched their own brands with Sofia Vergara and some others. And they've also partnered with ThreadUp. All of these are trying to get some higher priced, higher margin goods into onto their websites. All of those come with a higher margin, and Walmart doesn't want to lose those margins to returns. Uh, Walmart is notoriously a very low-margin business. They're trying to boost those. Higher-priced apparel is one way to do it. They don't want to see those erased by returns. So the acquisition of Zekit, I like it a lot. All right. With that said, let's bring on Ethan Chernovsky, the VP of Marketing at Placer. Ethan, thank you for being patient, and thanks for joining us. Having me. It's great to be here. Uh, I, you still in Tel Aviv? Yes, sir. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. I know it's a, a strange time difference for you, probably late at night there. Ethan, we want to play a little game with you. So it's very simple. It is called buy or sell. I will give you a statement or a rumor and you tell me whether you're buying or selling it. And Anthony, and I will do the same. So uh, Macy's on Tuesday, just today on their earnings call, they said the huge first quarter sales gains are not fleeting. CEO Jeff Gannett said during the earnings call that we don't see this as a short term pop. You buying or selling? I'm buying. I think Macy's is a, a vastly underrated brand, I think, for a few reasons. Number one, when you look at the footprint they have, yeah, maybe they need to right-size. Maybe they're a little overextended. But they have a lot of success when you look at a per-store basis, the amount of traffic they have coming to those locations. But I think even more than that, they're willing to try and test things, which gets me excited when you see something like Market by Macy's and all these other kind of concepts that they've rolled out over the last few years. I have a lot more faith in a brand with a huge brand awareness factor and a willingness to try new things than I do in someone who isn't necessarily as willing to, to test out new concepts. I love that answer. answer. Anthony, got anything to add? I'm in an argumentative mood, so I'm just going to okay. disagree with everything <laughs> everyone says today. <laughs> I am selling. Um, so I'm thinking that they're saying what they're supposed to say on these quarterly calls. I think they're just, you know, what do the shareholders want to see? What can what they want to expect moving forward? And I think we're looking at Macy's. I, I have to agree with him that they're, they are doing things in a much more innovative way. I just think they're going to be dying out at a slower rate. 
I am actually in Anthony's corner here. I'm selling, a, I'm selling this. Uh, I do think Macy's has a lot of great locations and they are, in, they are in a place where they can turn this thing around. But I was in two Macy's this weekend. I, kinda, I don't know if you know Neil Saunders, uh, Ethan, but he does a great job on Twitter of going around to different retail shops and kind of just posting pictures of uh, the way things are presented. And I went into two different Macy's this past weekend and both of them, obviously anecdotally here, both of them were very poorly run. Stuff was all over the place. Uh, and there was out of stocks and and just kind of pick through all over the place. I will say that I just don't think that this momentum continues uh, for all that long, but Macy's certainly is in rebound mode, in recovery mode, and, and a long way to go uh, there. Okay, I got one more for you, Ethan. According to the information, Amazon is weeks into negotiations on a deal to acquire MGM Entertainment for about $9 billion. You buying or selling? I am buying that I love it. Not okay. necessarily that I think it's going to happen. I feel like there's even, you know, the big debate for me was less about an MGM, but it was kind of earlier on in the pandemic when we were talking about AMC yep. and who could potentially buy. Uh, you want to see these kind of innovative brands gather up some of the the expertise that comes from l- legacy players. And that combination is really exciting. So I think it would be awesome if it happens. So this is maybe less than buying or hoping that I'm buying, if that makes sense. Hey, I'm with that. I would love to see this as well. I remember thinking back to that AMC rumor. I think we actually did something similar on this show way back then for that rumor. And it just didn't make all that much sense from like a synergy standpoint. I mean, there's things that they can leverage there. But this deal, uh, the the library that, that MGM has, over 4,000 movies, some amazing titles, the Bond movies, uh, and so on and so forth. Just a great library. I think it makes a lot of sense for um, for Amazon. I will say the price seems a little steep. It's I, I would $9 billion for their content. I'm not sure. But Anthony, you got any thoughts? I'm buying. All right. Now, I'm buying not because of this release. I mean, they have to do this just to kind of stay competitive because I don't think their originals have been competitive, what we've seen, especially with Amazon, Hulu, and it's hard to compete with Disney Plus. For sure. Yeah. I'm buying solely based on their play in healthcare. So, kind of sidestepping what this recent news was. But I think they're going to be successful with this because it's Amazon. Yeah, they don't miss very often, do they? They seem to make very calculated, and they are surgical uh, with their with their acquisitions. All right, Ethan, let's pop into your work, man, because you have been a busy man over at Placer. Uh, let's start with a little bit of Placer, though, because this is, I believe, your first appearance on Freightways TV. So just a little bit of background on Placer AI and the data that you guys have uh, compiled. Sure. So we are a panel data company. Very critically, we see 30 million devices throughout the country. Uh, We use AI and machine learning to then make estimations based off of that panel to estimate two visits to any retail location anywhere in the country. Uh, It is all anonymized aggregate data. We are GDPR and CCPA compliant. But in the simplest form, we say that people vote with their feet. And we are showing you how people are voting every day across the United States. Yeah, it's fantastic data. If anybody hasn't gone to placer.ai, hop in there and check out the square. It is an amazing tool to see, as Ethan said, literally by brand, uh, looking at at trends by 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 segment, by company, by state. It is absolutely amazing data. So. Ethan, I was going to plan that we, we take a look at a few segments in particular and then kind of wrap up with just some themes that you are seeing moving forward. But before we did that, I just wanted to give you a moment to say, and I know you had put out kind of a Q1, uh, what have we learned piece. I didn't know if you wanted to touch on any kind of learnings after leaving Q1. Here we are in mid-May. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a couple of really interesting things that are happening in retail. And I, I think one of it is this growing understanding of what a physical location is and what we want to gain out of it. So for example, 
you know, think of uh, brands like Nike expanding. So why is this happening? Why is this so interesting? So obviously, it's another chance to sell product, which is great. But I think even more than that, when we think of omnichannel and we think of the kind of coming together of offline and online and these shared goals, we're asking, how do we maximize the physical location? And that means understanding the values that it brings from a marketing perspective, understanding the values that it brings from a logistics perspective. You know, you mentioned earlier returns. Think about how the cost of returns that's cut when I don't need to deliver it, when I can have you drop it off in a store, when I have the chance to help you up, you know, to upsell you so you come back in, maybe you buy something else as opposed to just shipping it back. When it comes to limiting those costs, you know, we think of AR, VR with like a Zekit acquisition, but all the more so, what if I launch stores that are just focused on helping you try on products to make sure you end up buying the right thing when you do buy online? And I think a lot of this uh, growing understanding of what a physical location can do how we measure this, the value of the physical, physical location as a result is one of the most important things that we're seeing in retail right now. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it is an amazing thing seeing these, um, seeing these retailers evolve in ways to ship from store, Target. We're going to talk about a few of these here in a moment. I think Target has been a huge outlier uh, in its ability yeah. to, it's been leveraging these stores. I mean, since 2013, it has had a distinct focus on its stores, but this year has kind of just seen it all capstone come to life. Uh, it's been incredible. So Let's pop into a couple segments here, Ethan. And I do want to tell you, I've got a couple charts that will pop up while you're speaking. But I was thinking we start with general merchandising. You had the Walmart versus Target um, kind of comparison the la a couple weeks ago. You know, what are you seeing, Walmart versus Target? When I look at this, you know, year over year, actually comparing to 2019 chart, I'm seeing Target just, I mean, it's just unbelievable that they're growing here, uh, you know, in, in mid-single digits in foot traffic while we're still posting you know, we're going to be coming out with that e-commerce number they report on Thursday, but I'm expecting that e-commerce number to still be really strong. They grew triple digits in Q4, expecting something like that here. Just what are your takeaways here with Walmart and Target? So I think there's two really interesting things, and it actually touches on a point you made earlier about Walmart kind of going up market. If you think about where Target is, they do so many things so well, and they're essentially context-proof. Like, it doesn't really matter what's going on in the world. Target is going to succeed. And whether it's I'm making fewer visits, but with a larger basket size, I'm making more visits, but with a smaller basket size, a private label, the brands we bring in-house, it's all working. And I think part of that is the way they look at locations and how to merchandise on a per-location basis, but also this idea of the middle. So I think one of the big retail themes of the last decade or so has been the death of the middle. And I think if you think about the brands that are really thriving right now offline in certain segments, they're brands that have figured out how to nail the middle. I think this idea that Target is a value-oriented retailer is, is nonsense. I mean, having Disney locations, having Apple within their stores, having Casper, these are not value orientations. These are understanding what does that middle segment of the country really care about? Where do they want to spend their money? Where are they willing to spend a little bit more? Where do they want to save a little bit more? But within this lane of the center, not necessarily that value orientation that Walmart sees. And I think the success is actually what's pulling Walmart up market more. And you think another reason is how much competition is in that value lane. So brands like Dollar General, Big Lots, Five Below, all seeing really strong performances in the last year or two. And that's not going to necessarily slow down. So Walmart's looking to kind of expand into a new space where they have more room, a little less competition, and can find this lane that so many other brands are seeing success within. 
Yeah, that's a good point. You know, they are definitely taking a page out of Target's book here. It's a good book to go by. They're literally rewriting uh, many books, right, with e-commerce fulfillment right now uh, and really kind of expanding that middle market. I wanted to ask a question. You know, I know you guys are studying foot traffic data, but given the strong foot traffic that we just saw there on that chart comparing back to 2019, you know, if you were to give an expectation for Target's e-commerce growth, you know, would you expect that to slow? Because I'm looking here at the, at the Walmart um, numbers here and foot traffic is recovering, but, but, but their e-commerce has slowed as well. But I think it's at 37% year-over-year growth in Q1. You know, what are your expectations for Target given there's such strong uh, foot traffic growth? So I think there's a few things. I think one... Uh, e-commerce and in-store are, are increasingly overlapping. So if I go to do buy online, pick up at the store, and it takes me 10 to 15 minutes, we're seeing that visit too, you know, and it's it's not a two-minute trip in most cases. We, we understand that from, from what we're hearing. Also, we need to remember that California is still way behind, and it's likely to stay that way until at least the early summer. Uh, New York is the same. And so even though they are succeeding because of the rebound of states like Florida and rebounds in states like Texas, there's still another surge to come, giving e-commerce an extended grace period, so to speak. I don't think e-commerce is going to see the same levels it saw before. I do think the most uh, sophisticated brands are going to view e-commerce and physical stores as part of a cohesive whole and trying to understand how each element can support the wider picture that these brands are attempting to achieve as opposed to seeing them as distinct entities. Ethan, I'm glad you brought up uh, California in particular, because this was something I was going to ask you about when we spoke about the wholesalers uh, and Costco. Is this something that we could kind of be expecting as a catalyst across the board uh, in retail, just these reopenings of the major markets of California and of New York? Yeah, 100%. And I think there's certain brands that are going to benefit much more than others. And it's just because of where their stores are distributed. So we saw this even earlier on in the pandemic in, in a sector like off price, right? So Burlington was a little bit slower to recover than at TJ Maxx or Marshalls, and there was concern, but actually it was they were operating heavily in states that were more shut down, or Home Depot versus Lowe's in those first few months of the pandemic, even though they were both essential retail. A big part of the story was where do we have locations and how are those different states operating? I think you're going to see this wider surge in that early summer period when these states open up more. I do think there are some brands that are going to benefit benefit from it more than others. So a grocery brand that we've looked at a lot, you know, talking back to, to Amazon is Whole Foods. Whole Foods got clobbered almost like no other grocery brand. And as cities come back online, that's going to benefit them significantly, allowing them to really cut that visit gap significantly, if not return to year-over-year growth. Yeah, Whole Foods is a is a funny situation. I I, I have I don't know if you've been in one recently, but I went into one maybe four months ago, and I was just I was bumping into pickers, uh, people packing uh, all, packing Amazon uh, orders. We don't have a Amazon Fresh distribution center. I mean, here in Chattanooga, we're a small market, so the most of the online grocery orders from Amazon are fulfilled from the one Whole Foods in downtown Chattanooga. So it is just packed with Amazon pickers all the time. Uh, Ethan. The thing that makes, I mean, we talk about Amazon being so smart, and I think clearly they are, right? But look at what they're doing in grocery. I think we many would agree that the Whole Foods uh, acquisition hasn't been seamless, right? It's clearly very smart. There's a lot of benefits from it. But taking a high-value uh, grocer that's not necessarily known for 
you know, ah, whatever you'll get, it's the best price, it's the most convenient. That's not why we would go to a Whole Foods. No. We go to a Whole Foods because we're willing to spend a few extra bucks on asparagus, or we love their kind of uh, pre-cooked meals and the things you can take home. That's Whole Foods. What's interesting about Amazon now is the push of Amazon fresh throughout the country, where they're launching it and who it's competing with. And that feels like the real money lane for Amazon in the sense that they're competing with uh, more value-oriented brands, so places where you're looking to spend a little bit less, where that convenience becomes the primary element. And I think that fits much more with the Amazon model than a Whole Foods does. And I think you'll start to see a distinction between how Amazon approaches all of these different labels underneath it to try and accomplish the most with each specific entity. This is something that I've been I've been kind of confused by and watching at Amazon because from from an outsider's perspective, it is kind of confusing with all of the different offerings. You've got Fresh, you've got Same Day, you've got Prime, Prime Now, uh, you know, they've shuttered Pantry, but they've got Fresh Go. I mean, it is, it's confusing from an outsider's perspective, but I think go, dating, looking back to what you said about Macy's is they're experimenting, right? If any retailer that wants to be succeeding in a post-pandemic world, I think that one of your takeaways may be that they need to be experimenting and doing it really fast and in everywhere that they possibly can. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, you nailed it on the head. I mean, I think what Amazon is, we're seeing a digital company operate. Right, which is test a lot of ideas, understand that many of these ideas are not going to work amazingly, be ready to tweak, be ready to adapt, and try different things. And I think the brands that we're all excited about, I mean, even look, call back to Dollar General, they're launching Pop Shop, which is an upmarket concept, which is not something you expect from a dollar retailer. Uh, think about Dick's Sporting Goods, going both off price and heavy on the experiment on the experiential side. I things. love that new I think house of game. Too. I, I love it. I think it's so exciting to see a brand say, we're doing well. And from this position of strength, we're going to try new concepts. As opposed to, ooh, things aren't going well. What can we do now from a position of desperation? Well, that is a perfect segue into another sector that has just done unbelievably well throughout the pandemic. That's home improvement uh, from Lowe's to, uh, to Home Depot. And the, really the big surprise here, look at Tractor Supply. My goodness. Uh, the CEO of Tractor Supply, his name is escaping me right now, but he said on the last earnings call that their biggest growth is coming from millennials. And I can agree with that, at least anecdotally. Like all of my friends are buying pots and plants and starting our own gardens. And uh, I'm buying my dog food from Tractor Supply now. So, I mean, this is just incredible. I just wanted to kind of get your takeaways from the home improvement because these are all companies that are in a position that have done very well for the past year. What are you seeing from them? And, you know, what are you expecting to see? So I think you're going to see a really interesting next few months that are going to be a big test because these brands didn't just outperform in their normal seasonal peak, which is kind of March, April, May. They extended that deep into the summer, deep into the winter, into the start of the new year. And it's, you're waiting at some point for normalcy to hit. And I think it's really important that we remember that the heights they hit in the last year or so are not quote unquote normal. There's something special. But the thing they do have working in their favor is a lot of people are moving and changing locations. One of the things we've seen with our migration analysis tool is major shifts in where people are living. And that doesn't mean that cities are doomed or any specific location is, is going to suffer. Extended. It just means there's going to be shifts. So people are going to leave cities to the suburbs. Some are going to leave cities for other cities. And there's going to be this mix-up, which means that this, you know, hey, brands that can help me spruce up my new space are going to do really well. Like I think I'd be really excited about IKEA in the next couple of months as people start returning to cities. Still be excited about Home Depot, Lowe's, Tractor Supply as you see people moving into the suburbs looking to make that house a home. 
I think Ethan makes a great point here, especially when you're looking at more consumers making those shifts. We've seen throughout 2020 more individuals making those shifts from those metropolitan areas to have that increased cost of living or improved cost of living um, to those country areas. So we're looking at the South that's been growing exponentially, Midwest, um, compared to the West Coast and some of the more mature markets in the Northeast. But he hits on another good point, as more individuals kind of get back to that city, there's going to be those downstream impacts from them relocating to those maybe apartments and multifamily units. IKEA is going to be definitely a, a hit or a play as more and more individuals kind of fill up those new homes with new furniture. We'll talk about those downstream impacts all the time. Yeah, I've got a couple friends in New York City that are uh, screaming from the hilltops that New York City is back, baby. They're out and about in the city that the people are moving back. So I, I don't think it was ever dead. So I agree with both of you. Uh, we're going to see some movement back into the city. So Ethan, we've got about a minute here. Uh, let's just kind of wrap this up with some takeaways. We didn't get to everything, but that is okay. Let's just go with some takeaways. You know, what are your biggest lessons so far from the first five months? And what are you expecting for, you know, the end of the year? So I think there are two big things. One, behavior didn't change in a really extended period. We're seeing behaviors return incredibly quickly where they're able to. So where people go back to work, they start going for coffee in the morning at Starbucks again. They start going to the grocery store in the evenings and on weekends again. Our behaviors didn't shift all that dramatically, but small changes can mean big things. And I think that's where we need to be aware of. So a thousand people leaving San Francisco for Raleigh, North Carolina, it's not a dramatic shift on a national perspective, but it is a major shift if that's a thousand developers who are now relocating to a better environment where they have more disposable income, where they're going to attract uh, more companies to set up offices. So I think we need to focus as the year comes on as understanding what were the accelerated changes which are likely going to continue? What were the things that were COVID related which will likely go away? And how do we understand how those accelerated changes are going to shift the long-term strategy in a way that impacts uh, retail, office, and the whole landscape. Fabulous. Ethan, uh, I'm going to have to bring you back on here in a few months. We'll have to do this again. This was great fun. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to be here. All right. Uh, hey, last before I let you go, give everybody listening a shout out where they should go uh, to find more about Placer. Sure. So uh, placer.ai, a section called The Square on our website, all free tools. Uh, you know, it's just a great way to get a taste of what the data can mean and what it can show. And then we have a free version of our premium product at also placer.ai. You can sign up for free at any time. Fantastic. I can attest to that. It is one of the best products that I get to use on a weekly basis. Thank you so much, Ethan. All right. That was great. I love Ethan. Sorry I didn't bring you in more there. I was just no. kind of into it with him and we were going and I was just kind of, I kind of got, a, got carried away to. there. So. I mean, you got to have him on. I know it's not my show, but you got to have him back. <laughs> yeah, we'll have Ethan as soon as he will uh, allow us. Uh, okay. That's been it for episode 70. I guess kind of a mile marker here. We've got Freight Waves live at home starting tomorrow, 9 a.m. Wednesday, May 19th. We'll see you then. We'll also see you again next week. Thank you.